Kisa kyukit gapiniskel. Huagathlik misapathki. Hello everyone. My name is Michelle and this is episode four of uh, Tanakha Her Stories. So I wanted to talk a little bit about introductions and why they are so important. Introductions, in my experience and worldview, ensure accountability, responsibility, and knowledge mobilization, transfer, transmission, transformation. Introductions contribute to investments in each other and are evidence of lifelong relationships over time. Not only of human beings, uh, but uh, by and for all living things. Introductions build the context for shared meaning. And so when we talk about culture, um, in, in episode three, we talked a little bit about culture and the definition, right, of what, what culture is, the ways of doing. Uh, and, you know, in those ways of doing, also land acknowledgements is a sort of an introduction right, to, to reintroduce ourselves to places. And so I wasn't surprised. Um, I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised. It was one of those, uh-huh, <laughs> the universe has a way of reminding us who we are. Uh, when I was at the UK and when I was at Salisbury Hill and then what happened, right, to reaffirm, to, to provide me... Um, solace to 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 remind me of of what you know i do have the ability to respond to the request of come and talk to us tell us about this thing um intractable conflict resolution and so um and and so in carrying forward um you know the introductions from my people to that room full of people uh, most of my presentation time was taken to just explain to them where in the world I was from uh, and to understand that I came and I brought gifts because that's important, because uh, they it is important for us to establish this relationship. Otherwise, it's a one-off, right? And, um, and so what's the point of me being invited? And so uh, to reaffirm, right, to, to support that, that opportunity um, and it's interesting because you know I think I mentioned this before right I had this breakdown when I was reading Bruce Medina's work um, on brain um, brain rules and he talks about childhood and he talks about um, how we are loved in childhood right enables a certain amount of brain development uh, but also, um, you know, the mirror neurons and you sort of learn how to be in the world and what your value is and so on and so forth. And he made a mention of the love languages. And so I was like, love languages? I think I have that book because over Christmas last year, for whatever reason, I don't know if you've ever done this, but, you know, I believe that they have a spirit, those books. And I have over 500 books in my collection. And so what I did over the Christmas break, just before New Year's, is I opened every single book and flipped it, right? Flipped it, flipped it so that air could get into every single book. 
And I didn't even recognize all the titles and I quite often will put little notes to myself, right? When I bought a book and I'll write my name in it and sort of write a note about why or, or what I was thinking in buying that book. And so when March came and I, I went to this, um, this dark place, which is not a bad place. It's, you know, in order to have transformation, sometimes we have to go to those dark places, right? It's not all, it's not all, um, it would be a very unbalanced life if we were only ever always happy. And so I ended up when Bruce, or sorry, when John Medina talked about, um, you know, love languages and learning how to love in your childhood. And I thought, oh my goodness, I think I have that book and I went and found it and I knew exactly where it was and I looked in it and I read the little note that I'd written to myself and I'd bought it almost 10 years ago and all it said in it was um, learn to love yourself and I thought huh I'm pretty smart (laughs) thanks for leaving me notes (laughs) and so I read it and you know it's a western you know, it's it's uh, it's a Western concept. These love languages, and it was all about um, you know couples and couple therapies and so on and so forth. And because I'm in social work, right? Because I come from that background, you know, I read it and was like, okay, grain of grain of salt, grain of salt, grain of salt, right? But I also started to think about back to my own master's thesis. So I did my master in social work on the Tanakh can basket perception of the welfare of our children. What does it mean for our people? What does the welfare of our people mean to us? What are the issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I had the blessing, the benefit, and the privilege to listen to over a hundred people basically tell me their life stories before the residential schools before they went away to the school and then they would talk a little bit more about the school experience. But what they were really talking about when I asked them, what does the Tanakha perception of the welfare of children mean? They didn't really talk about the schools. They talked about their grandparents. They talked about the land. They talked about waterways. They talked about all of these ways of loving, uh, loving ourselves and loving each other into being. And it was just so brilliant. And so when when I came back to that book and I started thinking about, okay, there's these love languages. And you know, and I've said it and I'm I'm quite open about it, right? Like I've never been married, not even close. It's just not something that is in my life. I've come pretty far, right? I thought, you know, I I'm broken. That was a lot of, you know, the, the repetition and the messaging that I got growing up was that there was something wrong with me. Uh, and it, unfortunately, that is a message that more and more people um, are, are getting, right? Reinforced for them over their life course. They, um, and as Indigenous people, because of, like I said, that poorly arranged marriage, we have been devalued and like i said when there is nobody around to devalue us we will devalue ourselves right because we're socialized to that that mindset to that that heartbreak and so you know i had a lot of that thinking about am i broken maybe i'm the one that's broken and so and i've never understood dating i've never understood all those social conventions like honest to god i'm not kidding i just i don't get it and i'm sure there are people in this world men in particular who can say yep (laughs) 
Um, I've never talked to my exes, though I have no idea, but I'm just assuming and I'm letting them know here that, oh, I get it. I get it. I was not ready. I was always not ready for a relationship. And I, I always said that. And so, so I read this book because I wanted to understand, you know, maybe it would have the answer. Oh, and so I read it. And what I came to recognize is that, yeah, you know, for me, words, words are a way to love me. They're also a way to hurt me. Uh, quality time, right? So spending time listening to my words, giving feedback, giving comments. I hope you get to do that, right? And, and engage in dialogue and, and hear my words, right? Hear my, hear my essence um, offering, you know, that shared meaning making, uh, that opportunity to make meaning for ourselves as well. And then uh, what is it? It's touch I think right so holding hands or if you know me really well you always know right I'll grab you I don't mean to you know but I'll grab your arm or I'll you know come really close and touch your arm or you know hold hands or hug or what have you and then it is um, acts of service uh, so if somebody does something for me it just oh my goodness like I'm just like wow uh, and then gifts which is really funny because I come from a culture of where gifts are important, gifts and introductions, right, are important cultural ways. But those cultural, those important cultural ways have also been impacted by residential school, by scarcity, uh, by trauma that perpetuates that hoarding, right? That hoarding of, of information, that hoarding of knowledge, that hoarding of, of relationships, that hoarding of food, of, of you know, things, right? Um, all of those sorts of things because we we've, were raised in, for a number of generations, a number of decades with scarcity in our own homelands, which we would never have had that sort of scarcity before. And so trying to figure out how do we how do we adapt to that scarcity? And so I'm talking about that in this um, in this aspect to think about, you know, first of all, our ability to respond to each other, right? Uh, to unpack that crappy arranged marriage, right? To think about, you know, what are our love languages? What are the ways that we express love? Um, what I ended up doing with my children is I asked them to both do that quiz online and share with me the results and to answer it, just answer it for yourself. And it was fascinating because what I recognized is that, you know, my children are very, very different creatures uh, and that they had different love languages that were not the same as mine. And that, oh, when I started to unpack that and think about how do I love them better? Oh, this is how, right? This is what they, this is what, what tickles them, right? This is what touches them, what, what lets them know that I love them. And it doesn't matter that it's not the same way that I would feel loved. That doesn't matter. What matters is that they are feeling appreciated. They are feeling loved um, by actions that are unique to them right, that they, that they, um, they recognize. And which brings me to the idea of meaning making, right? That, you know, indigenous people for the most part have not actually had the privilege of making meaning of our own lives. 
Now you probably heard me say that in another, you know, in one of the, the earlier episodes where I talked about, you know, I have never, I have never been the one uh, to make meaning of my life, right? My life story was written for me, about me, without me, before I could even speak, because I was born a Tanakha, because I was born an Indigenous person, because I was born an Indian, because I was born an Aboriginal, right? Um, going back to the Papal Bulls, right, of the 1100s, where it said, you know, we are not human beings. And so the meaning making of my life has really been not by me. A number of years ago, uh, probably 20 years ago, I came across a book called Man's Search for Meaning uh, by uh, Viktor Frankl, who his experience was as a, um, a Jew live and in one of the concentration camps. And he witnessed what happened to his people when they gave up, why they gave up, right? Um, and the people who survived, what was it about them? Why did they survive? How did they survive? You know, and it comes down to that idea of searching for meaning, finding meaning in your life. And it seems such a simple, simple concept. But when you put it in the frame of culture, right, and of language as the tool of making sense of things and culture as the shared meaning, the shared values, and you think of how, you know, and I think Dr. Chris Horsethief's work does this very well, and how, you know, over generations, those systems have been deconstructed. And then it comes down to individuals like myself, right, who, you know, when I look at how do I know anything, for example, right? How do I come to know? Well, I'm Tanakha. I was born Tanakha. My father was Haudenosaunee with no claims to community. He has no claim and he doesn't even suggest he has claim um, with an Italian background as well because somewhere along his line, uh, Haudenosaunee married an Italian and lost their status, lost quote unquote their identity or access to culture, to that shared meaning making, to that opportunity to make meaning with family and, and, and relatives. And then from my daughter's side, you know, she is Anishinaabe on her father's side, and my son is Ntlepakmuk. Uh, I can never say that properly. Um, and then I was raised a Dutch immigrant Canadian Catholic as the youngest of seven siblings, so five brothers and a sister. But I'm actually the oldest of my mother's children, seven sisters. Uh, sorry, there's seven of us uh, girls and a brother. And so you think of the shared meaning making, you think of the culture, right? All of these mixed mass, mass, mixed meshes of, of culture. And then learning from Anishinaabe people when I was in their homelands, um, when I was in university and quite blessed uh, to, to have been learning from them and also taught by them, leave it here. That belongs to us, right? You can use it while you're here, but that belongs to us. Don't your people will have their own ways, uh, and that's very much what I found when I came home, that pe that our people had our own ways. But I had been taught by the Anishinaabe people how to listen, 
how to listen to my own people um, and how to how to ask questions you know like yeah you can ask questions how are, how else are you going to know the the Tanakha um, that I mentioned before about traveling and going to um, storytelling and going to different places and traveling with him you know I said to him once you know I got in trouble because I ask you a lot of questions and he said well how are you going to understand what I'm talking about if you don't ask me a question and I'm like oh well because we were told we're not supposed to ask questions and he said no you always ask questions that's what happened in our creation story and I was like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what happened. The human beings are coming. What are you guys going to do about that? Right? I'm paraphrasing again. Um, but that, you know, basically, yeah, it's a back and forth. It is a, a dialogue, right? It's not just a dictation, much like a podcast, which is why I want to get in your head, right? Get my voice in your head and thinking, um, because I want it to be a dialogue. Even if you're not talking to me directly, I still want you to talk to me about you know, and think about these things and, and give it energy, right? Um, and then because I went to university, I, I did an English lit degree. I told you about that before, but I also did an indigenous learning degree. Uh, and it, it was called indigenous learning and the foundation was philosophical. And it was about the fact that indigenous people, as indigenous people, we were relearning how to be who we are and who we were born to be. Essentially that meaning making, right? And then through that, I got to do some, some great, amazing, amazing reading, um, including uh, some work by Vygotsky, uh, who was a linguistic, um, I don't know exactly what his discipline was, but he did this study where he asked these um, indigenous people in, in Russia, uh, at the time of contact, so they were just in contact. And so he did this, this study between two generations, an older generation and a younger generation. And it's so simple, but it's so absolutely brilliant. But what he asked them to do, both sets of people, of generations, was to organize wool, a basket of wool, to organize it. And so each each individual did so and it he's i just remember the results that the results were generational differences that the one generation the younger generation would have put um i think it's all by color right it was organized by color and the older generation organized it by um quote-unquote tone I'm not sure what the what, you know like past it like so all the blues you know um, would be all together for the younger generation but the older generation older generation would have put um, blue light blue dark blue you know pastel what how however um, however they would have had them organized and that that was the subtle difference over generation and what had happened, though, was that the younger generation had become, quote unquote, more modern. And so their their idea of organizing information and knowledge shifted within that generation from their older generation. And I find that fascinating uh, because it's such a nuanced um, illustration of what happens with impact, right? Impacts over 
over a generation of, of experience, how we take in information and, and take in experience and how that starts to, to help us um, how our how our meaning making changes right our expectations change and so some of the other ways that I know right um, is like I said as a 60 scoop I'm essentially a middle child is how I look at myself because I was raised as the youngest but I'm actually the oldest and I count all of them as my family as my sibling group uh, and so as a result, I have in-laws and outlaws. Yep, I don't get along with everybody, but I love them and some I love from a distance and some I, I love very close and dear to, and, and close contact, close proximity. And so, um, like I said before, right, I'm a single mom, I've never been married and that has a shift, right? So for some people it's like, oh, you've never been married, what, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch written about that um, in Western society. And it's funny because I, I don't know, I don't know what it is exactly. When I look at um, history, when I look at Tanakh people, I know that there, uh, there was also always the social infrastructure, right? The coupling and, and not necessarily heterosexual, but the coupling. And so it just makes me wonder, right? Wonder about, is this new, right? Is this, uh, is this more common? Is it a result of trauma? Is it a result of, of having our dating pool very small, right? Like on a practical note? Um, is it, is it a, a result of um, racism, of discrimination, of how, you know, Indigenous women or Indigenous men, how we've been typecast as, um, you know, how we've been treated in the past, or is it because we're educated, right? There's a whole bunch of million of reasons, I'm sure. Um, and then, um, what was I going to say? Experienced. I, I have experienced and I'm addressing various trauma. I'm very, very critically conscious Um and reflective of the various traumas that I have experienced. Historical trauma on both sides um, by my, uh, or through my, you know, quote unquote biological family, but also through my adoptive family coming from Holland. You know, my, my adoptive parents lived through occupied Holland. And, uh, and it's funny, because the only time my mom has ever really talked about it, to me anyways, was at the beginning of the pandemic uh, last year when I mentioned to her that my son was having a hard time with high school, right? And he's trying to graduate and he's having a hard time because, you know, COVID and things are changing every day and every week. And it's just, it's, it's you know, just so stressful and, and unclear and unsure. And, and the only thing she said was, yeah, when the, when the war broke out, you know, we found out the Friday and that Tuesday we had our tests and that was it. That was the end of high school for me. And she's never said anything about that like that before. And I listened to her and I thought, my goodness, my goodness, that, that, that's a connection. She is equating this pandemic and what's happening to that experience that she had as a young teenager. Um, and everybody's talking about, you know, COVID and what's going to happen to the next generations. And I'm like, well, we could probably go back and ask the generation that lived through the, through, you know, the world wars, 
what it was like for them at their, that age, right? And that's where like the social epigenetics comes in. Because uh, I think we have a lot to learn and uh, um, a lot to teach each other in terms of the different cultures. Um, and being really honest with what those, you know, why do people come to Canada? Um, you know, the fact of coming to Canada, right? There's trauma in that. Um, so, yeah, so intergenerational trauma, right? Being raised by my adoptive family, they had intergenerational trauma. I know it, right? We had cultural norms of our family. And when I came back, same, right? There are cultural norms within the sibling groups. Um, developmental trauma. So as a person, um, you know, experiencing developmental trauma, but also as a parent, um, supporting my children with the developmental trauma, watching, witnessing them going through, you know, their lived experiences and recognizing traumatic events that are happening in their lived experiences as well. And then, of course, acute and, and complex post-traumatic st uh, stress disorder, right? Vicarious trauma, you know, is a real thing. Uh, I went through that when I was doing my master's thesis. Nobody prepared me to be listening to the life stories of my people um, and and to hear people that, you know, they told me, they told me their life stories, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. And to, to really hear, um, I learned a lot of empathy and compassion at that point. Uh, secondary trauma, right? Very much as a parent, um, ambiguous loss, right? Being adopted away, not knowing where my mom was. Uh, and then finding out when I was, you know, finally came back as an adult that she had been murdered five years before, you know, that's never gonna, I'm never gonna be able to resolve that. That's the ambigu ambiguity um, and that stress and, and trauma. And then people call colonial response trauma, right? So dealing with racism, dealing with discrimination, you know, dealing with, um, you know, the, the, the dehumanization, the intractable conflict um, that continues where uh, just trying to have these sorts of conversations. And I chose to have the podcast instead of writing a book for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, I have gone to try to write a book in the past and every time I do I get told about how quote unquote how I should write or how I should produce or, or so on and so forth and I also teach I teach in in a college I've taught in universities and you know I'm like yeah you don't always get to teach the truth of things you have to sanitize it you have to place it into this uh, false you know system of 15 weeks you're going to get through this course and you may never ever see them again and especially with indigenous content, quite often, you know, people are taking quote unquote courses as electives, not prepared for the level and the depth and the understanding. And so they're really just kind of flying in and flying out again. But yes, they need the content. Yes, they need to understand these things, but it's how we actually transmit and how we, how, what the opportunities for meaning making are. And so, um, like I said before, right, I'm, dog person, cat person, plant person. Uh, I'm a small business owner, homeowner. Uh, I travel. You'll hear a lot about my traveling stories. Um, I'm a taxpayer, right? That's like sometimes the biggest uh, myth ever, right? The myth of, you know, you guys don't pay taxes. It's like, uh, yeah, we do. 
uh, and I don't live on the reserve. I don't have home. I don't have, you know, a, a house or land left for me. It got willed away through the Indian Act system of how that happens. And so it really builds empires. It does build the hierarchy of haves and have nots. It replicates what's happened in mainstream society, but at a microcosm of the reserve system. And of course, we're trying not to do that. Um, so it can look very confusing and very much like you don't know what's happening when in fact we're trying to change a system in which we actually don't have the authority to be able to change the system the way that we would like to. And then we have historical grievances, right? Because things were done generations ago and now here we are, right? So I look at my, my mom's family, right? So three of her her and two siblings were left in the residential schools. Uh, our grandparents were around, but, um, and then they weren't, right? And then my grandparents went to the States. And so, you know, my mom is effectively exiled from her homelands and from her familial relationships, right? Self-exiled, if you like. I don't think that's true because, I mean, you know, she... Who's tying her? Who Who is tying her to place? And when everybody was falling apart. And so for myself, you know, first generation forcibly exiled from our homelands. But I came back. Um, and so my children are back as well. And so, you know, I'm I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. And, um, you know, I, I like being outside. That's, that's a lot of what influences me. And so I'm quite, quite concerned for the insistence when we're talking about only human-centric relationships. And I think part of the problem with the conversation about climate change, for example, is that we are having these conversations with human beings at the top of the mound. We have not yet evolved to the point where we recognize that human beings are the little brothers and sisters of the universe. We are the youngest to exist. Everything else has existed longer than we have. Um, and we like to think that we are the only conscious folks because we look at all our technology, look at I'm, how I'm talking to you, et cetera, et cetera, as if we've arrived. And I'm like, well, you know, there's different frequencies and different things, right? And when you look at, for example, I think it's the, the aspen uh, trees that share roots under the ground, right? They share that neural system. And I just think, man, that's amazing. I bet you they communicate, right? Um, and we think about communication. We think about the different needs, the different cultures then of the animals. And we think of biodiversity, one of the biggest challenges I think we have in even understanding climate change is that we don't even recognize, quote unquote, the biodiversity of indigenous peoples as we are, who we are, and where we are. And I think if we could get our heads around that, if we could just, because it's quite a complicated, complex concept, but if we could get our heads around that idea that the biodiversity of 
our environments is the same biodiversity of the indigenous peoples. Now, some people will be like, no, 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 that's not possible. It's like, well, actually, when you think about our DNA, when you think about if we were in place for tens of thousands of years, our DNA and the landscape and waterways, the, the subtle shifts, the subtle changes, the biodiversity of place is also within our bodies. And you saw that in a study earlier this summer that was offered where grizzly bear DNA and the human being's DNA were connected. It's quite literally not rocket science. It's biological fact because we share environment and we eat the food and we are in that food cycle. So I'm gonna leave you there uh, for now for a couple days and um, I'm really grateful that uh, that you followed me to this point I hope that you're enjoying this um, of course you know check out my website and uh, I hate doing this I feel like a commercial now but check out my website and if you have ideas or if you've got you know topics uh, you would like to hear me talk about um, chances are I probably got it in my head and and I'll get through it I have um, probably about 20 pages of just sentences of things that I want to talk about <laughs> with you and share ideas with you, which is, of course, why the podcast. Uh, and, of course, the goal is always to support reconciliation, uh, to support meeting-making, right, uh, to support positive talk about um, ourselves as Indigenous peoples with each other, but also to support non-Indigenous peoples to to find your humanity as well, right? To, to be reminded of being human beings and to have connection, right? Engagement and meaningful connection. We all need that to thrive. And with COVID, I know it's been a real challenge. So, takhta uh, an winniket and thank you.